I think half the battle has been in my own head and half the battle has been trying to convince myself that I can get to where I want, but it might not be in the same way as everyone else. Attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Muddled messages were received the by the brain. Dyslexia. It will not hold you back. Dyslexic. It's kind of useful. Anything is good. Dyslexia. Hello, we are Move Beyond Words and welcome back to another episode of our podcast sponsored by Arts Council England. I'm Elizabeth Riffian. And I'm Charlotte Edmonds. In this series, we gain a deeper understanding of our dyslexia in all its creative and often misunderstood forms. In this episode, we sit down with British columnist, TV critic and broadcaster, Scott Bryan. When not attempting every technical challenge on the Great British Bake Off, Scott is writing extensively about television for the likes of The Guardian and iNewspaper, or talking for BBC News, Radio 4, or co-hosting the Must Watch podcast on BBC Radio 5 Live. Today we chat with Scott about his career, his love of TV, and what it's like to tempt fate and chase a career inundated with words. Welcome Scott Bryan to the Move Beyond Words podcast. Scott, I'm going to go really deep, really quickly. Okay. And um, I would just love you to please talk about your favorite TV shows. Oh, <laughs> please take your time. Okay, so I mean, Succession is out now, and it's just a phenomenal ride because you go in thinking, "Oh, these people are awful," and then by the start of season three, you're like, "Oh, these people are awful!" Like you just get addicted to their terrible nature and how I've awful they it. are. It's a, it's, it is written by Jesse Armstrong. Um, he did the same um, uh, shows as Fresh Meat. He does Peep oh, Show. Wow. Oh, so wow. Peep Show. Yeah, I know exactly. It's Massive that sort fan. of humour as well. Look quite ex- full of expletives. Um, so that's great. There's um, American Crime Story Impeachment at the moment that started recently on BBC. And it's the Ryan Murphy series that looks at um, Bill Clinton's impeachment and Monica Lewinsky. But Monica Lewinsky is brought on as an executive producer. <gasps> yeah. So it's you get to see her side Changes. of the story. Yeah. So there's that. It's been a good year for TV. I think there's a lot of stuff out at, at the moment. Sex ed- education was great. I that was such that. an education as well. <laughs> like I genuinely learned so much from uh, the second season. Yeah, second season or third? Third. Third season. But I mean, yeah. I I for some reason stopped midway through the second, and then I was a bit like, "Why did I? This is so good!" And so then I good. just absorbed it all. And it's um, I love how. I mean, I don't, I don't know about, about you, but sex education for me in school was dreadful. Horrific. Yeah, when they did that scene in series three with a TV program and it's just completely different for women and men. And yes. Men, there's just no dialogue there. It was, I can completely empathise with yeah, that. I'm so it. pleased they did that. Yeah. Just to show that it was different and it has been different. I hope it's changed since. I hope so. Because I remember back then, you know, just Googling things to find out about stuff. And then I realised actually in my, in hindsight, that was not the greatest thing because it's not really reflective, is it? 100%. Do you think one day they'll do something like that around dyslexia? But then that's actually slightly interrogating. Do you know what I mean? Because actually who what, knows have... what dyslexia actually is? And it's the same as, as if like if you've... The best thing about sex education is there's so many different experiences that that programme's highlighting. I think that's a really valid question, actually, is that there is an education. I mean, there isn't an education around dyslexia. There isn't like in schools, there isn't an opportunity for students 
from my experience of school and there was never a chance for people to talk about what it is especially I learned that when I was like 23 what it actually is and like the the scientific explanation for what dyslexia actually is and I don't even know if that's completely correct yeah because because you get because there's sort of two things I've I've learned is that you get I think if you're dyslexic, you're kind of pushed to the side as in they're kind of like, oh, you're in this special category along with the other dyslexics. Yeah. But it's never really explains to other, other people who aren't mm. dyslexic exactly what dyslexia is. And then that then comes with loads of assumptions about dyslexia. I think one of the main things I found throughout my 20s and in my 30s is telling everybody that every dyslexic's different. Every dyslexic has different attributes, but also different challenges. And there's so many people who naturally assume, oh, it's about you, you can't read, you can't write, you can't spell. It's like, yeah. well, I can spell fine. Yeah, I can yeah. write okay, but I can't really read. But to anyone else, to you, to anyone, but that is their challenge is they might not be able to read. But it's this assumption, we're all the same. And it's like, that's what I find personally a bit frustrating. Definitely. And obviously you've, um, you've used your platforms to speak about your dyslexia, but what got you into TV in the first place? Ooh, so I think part of it was um, I was at uni and I wasn't um, diagnosed as having dyslexia then until I was about 20. And my degree was just going up in flames because I was failing it without really knowing why. So for all throughout my A-levels and my GCSEs, my grades were coming out you know, lower than I had anticipated, but still riding okay. I think a lot of the teachers were like, oh, we can be a bit careless around sentence structure and stuff. And um, they just saw me and me being a bit, you know, me. So they were like, sure, you know, just, just sharpen up those skills. But then when I got to uni, there was nowhere left to hide anymore, particularly that my difficulties were writing in formal kind of essay type ways. And when I started my politics degree, it all just fell apart very quickly because um, I wasn't able to convey exactly what I was trying to say. And um, that was the time actually when... I was getting involved in student societies and there was a newspaper called York Vision at my uni and they loved and they embraced the casual style of writing, you know, having a rant about things. And that was a lot of, in their culture and TV bit. So I was writing in a really casual, colloquial thing, which wasn't being affected by my dyslexia really at all. Whereas the formal side really was. And it was only when my friend uh, Tilly, who is dyslexic herself, had a little look at one of my essays and took one glance at it and went, you're dyslexic, why on oh, earth wow. have you not been diagnosed? And then, then I had the test and then I was told. What really interests me about the fact that you were studying politics is that that you were studying politics yeah. and you're dyslexic. And they're two things that maybe don't go together. But I wonder, had you have been told you were dyslexic earlier on, whether that door would have still been open to you in your mind? Possibly. I mean, I sort of also see it conversely, though, because somebody, if I was told earlier in my education, you know, in school, I was dyslexic, I would have seen that as closing doors rather than opening them mm. because I would have assumed, oh, I won't make it. So, for example, in journalism, I was keen to get into journalism and I'm keen to write and report about TV. But for ages, I was thinking, I can't do that because I'm dyslexic. I can't do that because you know, there'll be somebody going and looking over my words and going, oh, that doesn't work, or those sentences don't work together, et cetera, et cetera. And then that would think, oh, I'm wasting somebody's time. And then it only kind of dawned on me maybe five and six years on. So long as I'm honest with editors and say, look, if there are errors, it's not because I'm careless, it's because I'm dyslexic and I am trying. 
a lot of the time they would still be okay with it. So long as the main message wasn't lost from the piece and they weren't spending an age on it, I was still able to do what I really wanted to do. And I think if, if I was told earlier, I think it's the assumptions of you can't rather than you yeah. can, yeah. I think. Because yeah. back then, I think in school, you know, teachers are being taught what dyslexia is to an extent. But I mean, I think there's a lot of assumptions mm. about, about what they can and can't do as a result. Or, or there's an idea that they have to be kind of left alone for a bit, I think. I think it's so good having you on the podcast. And one of the reasons that we really wanted you on here is because you're such a great example of you can do what you want with dyslexia. You know, you don't have to go down a creative route. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be stopped because of your dyslexia. People do have those associations still. Like a good friend of mine was with me on the weekend and he was like, yeah, you're, you struggle with reading and writing, don't you? And I was like, no. <laughs> no. See, it's, it's those assumptions, isn't it? It's like, no. Yeah, I mean, like, how? You're one of my best friends. Like, how do you not know this? But it just like rang massive alarm bells that we've still got such a long way to go still in our advocacy and you know, just speaking up about this. So I'm, yeah, just really happy that you're with us today. To well, thanks just... for having me along. You're doing a very good thing as well. I think it's really important in terms of reducing stigma, but also I think being told that you have dyslexia, you immediately can add to your anxiety. It just adds to your anxiety and it, and it makes life feel more complicated than it should. And it also feels very isolatory because... You know, the statistics are there about how many people are dyslexic in the country, but it could be the situation that particularly in school, you're the only person in the classroom or there's only mm. a couple of you who are. Mm. So you don't really identify with other people who are. So it's, I think it's great to have, particularly what I found useful after I was told I was dyslexic is having online resources, but also like, you know, having, hearing people talk about stuff always makes you feel more grounded than human. Yeah. And you're not alone. Yes, right? exactly. That. And I, I, I've said it on other podcasts, but that is like such a big thing is that, you know, you're not going through and you're not having to navigate this on your own. There's so many other people who who are going through a similar thing. And you do, I've noticed online, like you do make yourself really relatable. And one of the things that you did was in 2016. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, what are you going to say? Oh, um, I, I forget what I did yesterday. You know what? Like that, that, that's, the, that's pretty much standard. Um, but you went viral with <laughs> with doing your technical yes, challenges yes, for yes, the yes. Great British Bake Off. Yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, I mean, the article has to be seen to be believed because the the actual end product of the cakes and all the challenges <laughs> was <seen> visually <laughs> dreadful. But like, what happened was artistic. Yes, artistic. <laughs> so I so I was at, at BuzzFeed and um, I was writing um, TV. And I think like a lot of the stuff that we were trying at that time was how hard could it really be in all of these shows? So we made a technical challenge bake myself and a couple of my colleagues as a joke. And I had never baked before. I mean, evidentially, I'm not sure how much I've learned over the whole process whilst doing so, <laughs> but, but I wasn't very good to start off with. And um, I just loved it. You know, I just I, I found it quite um, funny because what I tried to do is have the same conditions as they would have in the tent. So not right. allowing myself any outside help, not having the time challenge because there would be a fire um, if I was <laughs> if I was stuck against the clock. But like try to kind of like be very pro 
um, proactive. Mm. And um, uh, we documented it and made an article. And then when we got to like the second and third week, because Bake Off then continued for several more weeks, I just thought, ah, just, I'll keep going. Why not? I just keep going. I had my ex uh, at the time. Um, he, no, <laughs> oh, no. Did no, you no, run no. away from the baker? He's now my ex, but at oh. the time he was my boyfriend. That's a clear indication. But he was like documenting it and then we, for a laugh, and then by about week eight, my editor at BuzzFeed was like, when's the article coming along? And my reaction was, what article? And he was like, well, you've been baking for eight weeks. Are you going to put it into a piece? And then I was like, sure. <laughs> so then I um, uh, brought it in and then it ended up becoming this big viral thing. And loads of people were like, you are, you must have been purposefully bad for content. And then it took me about a whole year of convincing them, <laughs> no, I'm just really that bad. Have you accomplished uh, a task or a dish? I was going to say a dish, but it's not MasterChef. It's Bake Off. I can do, I can do, I can do bread. Because bread's easy. Like you can screw up. I yeah. don't know. I can, no, I'm not. Because it's an experiment. An and so long as you fold it and like give it a bit of air, and then you put it away and you prove it. It could look horrible, but at the end of the day, bread is bread. <laughs> like, you know, and it's, a, it's gloopy and it's fun and it's, it, it's a mess. The issue is timing because I would start after work, start at like 7 p.m. and keep going until it's done. Maybe sometimes it'd be like 4.30 in the morning <gasps> oh and my it's still gosh. going and it looks shit and it tastes <laughs> dreadful. And it's like, what have I done? What have I done? <laughs> By the second year, my editor was like, can you do it again? And I was like, sure, sure. <laughs> another app? What, another, another round? Of- uh, yeah, and did another ten, ten, 10 weeks worth. And, um, 10 weeks? Yeah, but I'd buy all of the ingredients, like some of them online, and there was one way I would, this is very dyslexic, I would try to get like half a gram of this type of material, but I'd ex- accidentally order a kilogram. <laughs> so I could technically feed, you know, 200 people but actually I'd only make it for myself it's so true I put the fact that I'm a very bad cook down to my dyslexia because I can't seem to figure out the maths or anything and uh, it's all the timings yes or or I get a bit impatient actually as well exactly yeah which I don't think is really my dyslexia but just me but the problem is because you, you're not always told exactly what is as a result of your dyslexia and what sometimes isn't sometimes you just assume yeah or you want it to be just yeah, yeah, you know yeah. to sort of round it all off so kind of in the same vein was there anything you spoke about reading and writing and kind of overcoming that um, but were there any particular challenges that you found yourself due to your so I sort of sort of see that there's sort of strengths and weaknesses. The the weaknesses is that I am okay at writing, but I have real issues with commas, with full stops, um, to an extent where I was lucky enough to have a tutor at uni and she would constantly look at my essays and be in light terror because she would be like, Scott, you've written a page and a half and you've not even got a comma in it. And, and then my natural reaction was, well, the market better breathe in because like, <laughs> I've, not, I've not got the time to go and do it. But what she did was that she was, she was brilliant and she would read out my essays and then she'd pause where there was a problem mm. in either sentence structure oh, or with helpful. thing. And then, it, and then she would wait until I gave the answer and she wouldn't move on until I gave a right one. So it was like forcing my head to acknowledge that there was a problem and to try to find a solution around it. Um, but so like, you know, commas and full stops are still problems generally, but I think I've got a bit better at that. 
And um, the other issue is that I that I can't really skirt around is is reading. I don't really read. I read like newspaper articles and things online, but because it's flashy and it's bold and it's got um, a nice font and most importantly, it's short. But if you give me a book, unless I highlight it to hell and go over every single word, normally I forget it. What I've just read, mm. what I've just read, the following chapter, it's just, it's just and it's gone completely in and out. Um, so the way around that is audiobooks and I listen to things for ages and that, and I find if I hear things or if I watch things I absorb it and I memorize it or I'm, I remember the details of it but if I read something then it kind of just goes That's a really great point because we've been speaking recently about what content works really well for people with dyslexia online because nowadays it's like quick content that's um, got the message there in a flash um, for people's like attention spans. But actually, for us to retain the information, maybe something a bit more pace, slower, visual. And we kind of put ourselves through a process working with a company on, on thinking about what that content would be. And I suppose because you just spoke about audio books, you spoke about how online is more accessible for yourself or a better, a better kind of space for you to retain that information. Is there anything that you've come across that or anything if you were to make something that you would change? I mean, I think, yeah, definitely audio, definitely trying to have something that is so compact, like here's the long version, here's the short version. When I was diagnosed also, I was told about you know, how you can get these filters that change the colours. And, and, oh, have you got Great. some? I've oh, yes. got this on my laptop. Oh, for, wow. For listeners, um, it's kind of like a scanner that when you move your cursor, it also moves like a, a glowing light, like a, a lightsaber <laughs> across so, so your it's a bit screen. So like, it's a bit like if you're drawing on your laptop with an actual physical highlighter. Yeah, but it moves exactly. when you move the cursor. Much more eloquent, yeah. <laughs> and so that's really really helpful actually and you can change the colors of this and, i never knew that um, was a thing yeah so that's with i'm going to promote this brand because it's been really helpful but it's read and write i find that that really helpful no that that's great i, I find it's like li little innovations like that really mm. really helps i think it's also just using visual things like you know it's a classical case of um something visual or video says a thousand words and I think sometimes, but, but you know, I, I think a challenge is, of course, every person who has dyslexia has it slightly differently than the next. So it's hard to come up with of all one encompassing, all, yeah. sourcing out um, solution. So for example, case in point, my friend Tilly, she can't really write that much, but she can read everything. And it's, and it's a bit of an infuriation because it's like, oh, you got that and I can't do that. But it's just... How how can you get around that? I'm not so sure. But I think there's something in that of like everyone has strengths and weaknesses. And like you said at the beginning, like sharing with your editor, like I am doing my best here, but it's a weakness. But I'll get the essence of the story, but I might not get all the spellings right. And I think just having those open dialogues with people, I think it takes a lot of time to get that confidence and self-understanding to be able to have those conversations. But I mean, I'd be interested to hear like, how do you have those conversations and when, if at all? So, I mean, you make a really good point. Um, what really helped me early on and what I would advise to anybody, because it really it was probably the biggest trick I learned, was after I was diagnosed, I had an expert 
who knew about what exactly I have explain in layman's terms what my weaknesses are, but also most importantly, where my strengths lie. And then I was able in my head to go, okay, so I'm not so great at this, but I am beneficial in that. Mm. I then try to find a way to minimize the weaknesses or naturally, I think your brain has found a way through them before you even were even told. So you can cope with the, the, the weaknesses, but then also focus in on the positives. And like, I think for me, the positives are, you know, coming up with ideas, problem solving, things that are quite useful in, in journalism. But also I found that I had a benefit in writing quite casual first person stuff. So third person, you know, the formal things was reading newspapers in a news story. Um, I find harder, but then casual first person opinionated pieces are easier for me to write. So I was initially like, right, I'll just do those then, rather than trying to put my head up against a wall and find it harder trying to do those formal pieces. And then I think a lot of it, it was early in my um, sort of career, was just being a bit open and upfront and explaining, you know, not just, not scaring because I think people get scared if you just say I'm dyslexic and then just go oh god what have I let in but I think like (laughs) casually being like oh by the way I'm dyslexic here are some difficulties that I occasionally have and then I have been pleasantly surprised at how good people have been I think I've been I'm not sure whether it's luck I'm not sure whether it's changing perceptions I think people understand that any, anything that could be perceived as sloppiness isn't you. And I think that's, that's smart. So that's why always on my Twitter profile, but also if I'm submitting a big piece of work, I'm just upfront about it to say before I even kick anything off if it's a new person. Or sometimes if there's a few edits and such and such and somebody goes, what does this mean? Then I'm able to kind of elaborate why. So that, so that I think is the main benefit. But also I think because of the work that I do I've lent more naturally into speaking about stuff, chatting about stuff, because I think my communication skills as a result of my dyslexia are are quite strong. So I would like watch TV and then I'll go on the radio to review it. And I think that's so like that's the advice by having a bit of guidance or somebody saying you're good here, you're you know shit, but you can improve there. That makes me go, right, I'll just go and do the things you're good at. And that, 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 that was just the boost I needed, I think. Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like that really is the best way to eliminate any mental health issues or anxieties that you mentioned before, because I think people dwell on things that they can't do, or they dwell on the really hard experiences that have happened and too much. And that's actually, you know, proven to trigger mental health issues. Whereas actually, if you're right, if you have someone laid out in layman's terms, exactly where you should focus your energy and lean into those seems like you're going to have a much more f- fulfilling time. And we often say, like, we have this monkey brain and, you know, less chats with your monkey brain. Do you know what I mean? Which is definitely the way. But also school is so hard, I think. And I hope it's got better since the time that I've been there. But I think it's unfortunately too hard in which dyslexic people and people who haven't got dyslexia are forced into the same cookie cutter model that everyone has to go through throughout their entire education. And I feel for me, I mean, it might have changed, but the, the only differences you have are more times in exams and maybe some computer support. And then you're expected to continue like that until you are basically out the door at 16 or 18, should you then go elsewhere. And that's, that's where the mental health issues can come in because you're constantly hit by know, maybe lower grades or a sense of anxiety that you're not doing as well as you're 
other classmates when actually you're just as smart as them. It's just that you're being graded in the same way that they are. And I think that can really hurt your self-esteem. hundred percent. I mean, when I graduated, um, I kind of came to London and was really focused. And I would go, and Charlie, you'll have a similar experience, but you'll go into audition settings and you will be sharing your weaknesses before being able to have an opportunity to show your strengths because you're being asked to kind of pick up choreography really quickly and take directions from the director and quickly implement them and show up as your best self. And that does so much damage to your mental health because you know you can do it. That's the most frustrating thing is like, you know that you can do it if only you were given that supportive environment. And it's the people around you as well. It's the judgments from other people without really understanding your situation as well. That just adds to it. So what do we do to change it, guys? How do we, how do we, you know, obviously conversations like this and, and keeping an open dialogue. And I can see from the work that you do, you know, you're often in high pressured environments as well. I can imagine that some things do go wrong. Yes. And I think dyslexia has a personality, right? You know, we can laugh with it sometimes. And so I'd be interested to hear if you have any stories around where dyslexia has crept up and not necessarily been the most supportive of, um, uh, yeah, I want to say friends, but it's not really a friend, is it? So I, so I have a tendency in coining terms on when I'm asked to review a TV show, sometimes I come up with like words to describe it and talk about it. And then it's only afterwards I go, that made no sense to anyone but, but me. So the other day I referred like what a I show. absolutely fine. Um, but I referred to a, as a, a show the other day as having a strange weirdness, which I think is only makes only sense to me because strange and weird are the same word, but I've just put them into the same sort of term. And then I, I always have a tendency in forgetting names, places. I always literally write down all the time, like people's names in caps lock when they're like sat in front of me being like, oh God. And then I would um, use the wrong uh, word for something else that in my, my head is there, but on the pages. And so, for example, there was one time that instead of saying that there's been a lockdown in Tokyo in regards to the Olympics, I said that there's been a lockdown at Tesco. <laughs> which of course is a whole different thing and then the worst thing about, like I tweeted that left it didn't realise like 10 minutes then loads of people were like can I still get my meal deal like what's happening to club card points like could you give me an update and then it's like oh oh yeah so I meant I meant this so I meant good. that so that so that's happened a few times um, yeah but it's but it's I mean weirdly like people just go oh it's just him it's it's fine but it's but it's um I think what annoys me, you know, what I find really annoying as an adult are people on the internet who correct your grammar, who correct your spelling, who go out of your way. And I've had emails when I've been in interviews or, or on the air afterwards saying, you said this sentence and the sentence didn't make sense. And it's like, A, like, why does this matter? Like, you know, because we're out of school. We're not being marked on it. We're not trying to learn anything. Like, we're adults. And B, like, get a life. <laughs> yeah, like, damn right. Oh, you know, I think, I think people going out of their way to tell you how things should be, unless it's in a situation where it's, you know, being public in a presentation or written in an article that would be read for a purpose. I think 
people correcting each other's language when you're not in school is one of the most infuriating things. I would abolish that in a heartbeat if I could. But I think that that's really important that also, like, I've stopped correcting spelling mistakes in my emails. Like, I've I've said this before, but we have delightfully dyslexic excuse the typos at the bottom of our emails. Yeah. And I think there's, we have to start being okay with our spelling mistakes. People understand it. You know, as long as it makes sense. Like, I think, like, there's an element that I've been trying to practice for myself. I've been trying to practice not going over and over and over emails, but just writing what I want to write and sending it without thinking too much. Because I'll spend hours reading over an email and actually the essence is there. Yeah. So let's just go. A hundred percent, because otherwise if people find it difficult or don't understand it, they just tell you. Yeah. And I feel it's quite rare for people to 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 um, not understand what you're saying or misinterpret it. I think it's quite rare yeah, to. Yeah. You know, a lot of the time emails are a bit like, where are you? Who are you? Where are you going? Like, yeah, that's yeah. essentially what they are. So yeah. it's, it's, it's I've, I think it's the, the fear of being judged, I think is always prevalent. You know, I feel like from school, it's being judged by a teacher and being judged academically. And then I think the more you're an adult, it's about being judged by others, but also by people you don't know. And I think that there's something that's quite liberating when you go, ah, Sodom. <laughs> you know, you're not caring as much. Massively. And the world opens up. Mm, exactly. I think about whilst we're doing this, and obviously Liz and I said this earlier, that we're dance artists. We don't normally sit in a room and talk mm. like this. We normally use like another medium to discuss something. And I was watching the morning show, binge the morning show. Is it the morning show? It is. Yeah. What do you think of the morning show? I love it. I'm... It's quite soapy, isn't it? Yeah. Like it, it mm. sometimes tackles really like important issues in our society like, rather well and not in a uh, not in a sensationalist way. But then there are other times where it's incredibly soapy and ridiculous. And then you keep thinking to yourself, the people, the the characters are are millionaire presenters. Like yeah. there are bigger problems. They could just relax a little bit. <laughs> but then you get addicted by how obsessed they are sure yeah definitely and um i was watching it was when they, they've got the new year's scene and they're reading the what are they called what is that called Ooh, also cues? yeah and i thought that is my <laughs> uh, that's my hell you know like <laughs> that is so hard have you ever yeah. found yourself in a situation where sometimes like when i'm reading an auto cue i mean the reason why i laughed was that it reminded me and then i just turned into a robot and i'm like yes <laughs> welcome to the <laughs> thing and yeah, I hope you are having a great time. So like we slowly worked our way around it being like, if there are things on an auto cue or I use notes, I ad lib. And then I would just throw to the term and the word at the right time. Ah. And that and that sort of way. It's like you just take I mean, what a skill. Yeah, real skill. I mean, it didn't work to start off with. But also like the adrenaline and fear makes you go, I will find a way around this. And and then you had a um had a talk with a very scared producer. Uh, as we try to work out a way so yeah so there's there's things like that I think it's um I find that I have to so we had to have a shared document when we do five live and and the, and the tv review slot and this is a section of the script what I just have to write down like this won't make sense to anybody but me yes and here's my questions and here's my notes and to anyone else they're like what fresh hell is this and I'm like just skip that for your bits, but but you know, so it's so it's kind of like adjusting things from trial and error, really. Yeah. And I think that 
you you get to a point where you just learn exactly how how you do it. But it's the same case with you. Like, you know, I bet that there's been many times that you have had a particular way of doing things that makes no sense to other people, but makes perfect sense to you. Yeah. I mean, there's been some quite scary times where I've forgotten choreography and then had to just like improvise. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And then, and that doesn't make sense to anyone, especially the choreographer. Yeah, they're like, "What are you doing?" But I mean, you've been an innovator. Is that a word? And in, yeah, an, innov- an innovator. An innovator. I mean, great word, right? Yeah, I, that's how I suppose we all become choreographers <laughs> and writers. You end up kind of going off track uh, or off piece, and then just sort of finding your own language. So, so, what, so what do you find are the benefits that you think your dyslexia brings to your work then? I think you've just stolen my job there. <laughs> I think I'm, so, so yeah. I'm just intrigued. Because it's hard to know what strengths are down to you as an individual mm. just being here and what strengths are specifically because of your dyslexia. Well, that's a really valid point. Is Sorry to jump in your question no, there. No but you've raised something really interesting that I was having a conversation recently with a coach who specifically works with people with dyslexia. And she said, I'm going to coach you because you're not dyslexia. Oh, really? You you are a whole human. Yeah. And dyslexia is a part of you. And I was like really quite taken aback by that. I guess the question that I'm asking is, do you see dyslexia as something that is separate from you or something that is a part of you? I think it is so... I mean, it, it's 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 naturally a part of you from from when you're born and it will always be a part with you. And I also think that... The moment that I was told that I was, so many other bits of my life that were frustrating kind of all suddenly made sense. And I also, you know, like, like I think what we've touched on before, it, it's hard to know at what point does your dyslexia end and you begin. And they're kind of mm. blurred because they're all mm. kind of one and the same. Like sometimes I think, oh, if I didn't have dyslexia, how different would I be? And it's so hard to know. And it's so hard to know because... I'm hopeful by, and uh, and this is a belief maybe rather than scientific fact, is that I believe that the people who have dyslexia do have beneficial skills in other parts of their life. It's just because their brain works differently, but they are able to possibly see different patterns, different ways of working, different problem solving, innovation, creativity, to allow them to live outside the normal assumptions or cookie cutter models that other people work. The difficulty, I think, can be trying to work out where people have their strengths are or they might be limited by their circumstances or mm. so forth. They might find it very challenging because of school or, or the environment. So, you know, I, I think that, that people who have dyslexia are able to really make strengths once they know where their skills are and where their attributes lie. I think the challenge that I find is that many people who who have aren't told exactly where their skills are, might not know. And then that makes it harder. For me, I find, you know, would I not want to have my dyslexia? It's terrifying because I don't know how much of the positive attributes of myself would be taken away if I decide not to have it, if that makes sense. It's, it's, so, it's so much a part of us, yeah, I think. Yeah, definitely. And it is what it is and it isn't what it isn't. And I think when you can accept that you are a full package and you're whole, complete and perfect, which was my motto for a a long time because we are like, whether you have any disability or um, impairment, you know, we are all complete and perfect and we have to find a way 
to that space of acceptance, which is a journey. It is a journey. A very long journey. <laughs> but the anecdotes along the way are... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was thinking of, of another thing. So my uni once gave me um, some software for my computer because they realised I had a problem with writing. So they were like, we'll find a way around this. So they got me a laptop that when I spoke into it, um, it would write out my words for me, like poorly, but like it would write it out. The issue was it would turn itself on and turn itself off at random intervals. And once <laughs> I was in the kitchen and Joe Wiley's Radio 1 Live Lounge was on, and before I knew it, it had the entire Little Mix interview in amongst my 3,000 word essay about political structures in Japan, which wasn't necessarily helpful, but I admire it for it anyway. I thought I thought you were, you were going to say something like you know you were you were bitching about someone in the oh, kitchen. No. I mean that's what my I do generally. lecturers really. That's what I do in the kitchen generally. I just I just have a go at my lecturers. Luckily, uh, Little Mix isn't so bad. Yeah, it's not. It's not so bad. Speaking about being at home and family and friends um, and partners, how has dyslexia affected your relationships? Ooh. It's interesting within my family because we reckon, I mean, I reckon that my dad has dyslexia too, but he would never get a test. Um, interesting. And I think it, it might be because he doesn't, because he, cause he's now retired and he works in, he worked in air traffic controlling. So that we're involved, not on the ground with the planes, but like along with my mum, actually, she's an air traffic controller too, but like managing to like coordinate where planes are and where they wow. fly in directions and he is amazing at visual skills at maps at directions at communication and he doesn't read and he doesn't write and that makes me go yeah definitely ding, ding. more physical ding, ding, ding. like yeah exactly but i feel that he he's probably thinking you know why would i get diagnosed now you know what uh, i've retired everything's fine you know, it's not, it's not, you know, he's, he's, I think, just by his life managed to structure a job that managed to go with what he was good at. So, so I think it's, it's fine there. I feel like there's, I think after I was diagnosed at 20, I think there was a bit of conversation with the family about, you know, why was it so late? And I think my mum had a lot of guilt mm. because she was able to tell from my essays that I was struggling but like my teachers, and with, with no negative sense, I think she felt, oh, it's just him being him. It's just Scott being silly without knowing that it was <laughs> your facial expression. Sorry, I'm like raging because it's, it's such a, I can imagine that you were a good student and yeah. you slip under the radar if you're a good student and you're not necessarily getting the best marks, but you're not getting the worst. Yes, yes. And you slip through the net. And I was that person as well. And that's why I'm frustrated because, yeah, had the support have been there, things. But also, your coping strategy, your coping strategy, I think, for a while is mm. I'll work more. I'll work more. 100%. And during my A levels, I was working unbelievable amounts, not in a braggy way, just because I felt I had, had to. to. Yeah. And then when I got to uni, I was in, in first year when everyone was in the nightclubs constantly. I was out, but I was also in the library, like all the hours. And it got to a point where I just noticed that it wasn't making any difference. The grades were still lower than they should be, and then they eventually kept going down and down and down. So it's... Um, massively relate, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's frustrating. Mm. It's just frustrating. And I think my mum felt a bit of guilt, but then I was a bit like, well, 
you know, I was still coping in that circumstance. No, it, it, it wasn't easily detected. And when you're in a class of 30 yeah. and you're still okay. It says a lot about your personality, I think, as well. And, and you know, I would love to hear, you know, you've mentioned some of your strengths, but I can imagine from those situations, so much character building has gone on. What have you seen on reflection as real skills that have come from having to have that I would say tenacity and grit to kind of get through. I think in my early 20s, I was definitely finding it challenging. I think just generally, I think because we were in a recession in 2010, 2011, there weren't many graduate jobs. And I think I was exhausted by uni. I got the grade I wanted, but it was like down to the final exam and one mark that got me to the grade I need it like, I, I want like basically I was was so close to getting a 2-2 and my final exam and the final mark just got me over the line and that was purely because the dyslexia support that I got only really kicked in in my third year and that gave me the extra time but also literally a stamp on my essays to be like this person's dyslexic please don't penalize on spelling and grammar and my grades went up a notch and I was thinking that was close but I felt that I was really exhausted and I think quite cynical. And then I think I went into kind of jobs that I felt were for me, but I didn't want. So I worked in a marketing job as an intern, but it didn't really fulfill me. But I just felt that like the bits I wanted to go into, radio, broadcasting, writing, were just not going to work because of the experiences and difficulties that I had in uni, but also like the assumptions that it was going to be really hard for me to write and really hard for me to express myself and all of that stuff. And it was only after a while when I was getting kind of, I was, I was writing on the side and it was for the TV section as a blog. And then I would start to pitch out to different editors and they would give me like little commissions here and there. And I realized by being open about it, it wasn't problematic. I was still getting the odd bit of work done and building that up slowly, but slowly, but slowly. I was like, oh, I can actually do this. I can get into this in my own way. And I, it was that realisation of I can do what I want, but it might not be the traditional way. Mm. It isn't going to go through the normal way in journalism, which is going news reporter and then get siphoned off somewhere else. So I was like, I will have to do it in this very elongated style. And then after a while, I was like, well, I'm going to do it now. <laughs> so like that kind of like bedded in and that... And that anxiety of, I have to give it my all because it might just not work and then I'll have to just try something else, I think has made me a bit determined in that mm. sense. I think half the battle has been in my own head and half the battle yeah. was being trying to convince myself that I can get to where I want, but it might not be in the same way as everyone else. And that's okay. And that's okay. That's totally yeah. fine. Yeah. That's totally fine. People will make allowances for you if you're open about yourself. So when I was at BuzzFeed, there was a sub-editor and he used to spend a bit more time on my articles because they would tend to have more errors. And I would send him a little bit of a warning, like 15 minutes before everyone else would, to be like, FYI, got a piece coming up. And he'd be like, yeah, sure, fine. And then that kind of gave me confidence because you never, you never want to be in an environment where you feel like a burden. Like, that's the worst thing, really. 
Yeah, it just makes me think of like so many situations where, yeah, I've had those feelings of like letting the team down. Exactly, yeah. You know, but you're working so hard and it's really difficult to navigate those conversations, but they have to be had. I remember a director once just coming up to me and saying, I just don't understand you. Oh, God. And you're like, oh, God, how do I work with that? Yeah. <laughs> like, I just don't it, understand it bad, you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Isn't it bad on uh, that person to be that that judgmental and that Yeah, outright? but I think, I think, like, I think there's a huge conversation to be had around, like, leaders understanding what dyslexia is because I had flagged to him as well. So, yeah, just I think those directors, editors people in those senior positions who impact on people's careers so massively having a deeper understanding of what dyslexia is is so important and you know we hope that these conversations that we're having will help people because it makes a massive difference to a team when you're working as a team and you're understanding where people's strengths and weaknesses lie so that you can support one another there's a bigger picture you know when you're writing a piece the bigger picture is the piece getting out there and that message getting out there. And I think some people often get stuck in their role within that and not seeing it as like a collective. I think it's just really important to keep reminding ourselves of why we do what we do. Yeah. And also I feel knowing exactly the strengths that you were able to bring to the team as well, I think are also really important. Mm. And emphasizing that, you know, I think I feel that there's something about being British where we're modest about things. That has come up. And yeah. That has and, come up. <laughs> and, and and I don't think it's that bad to say, you know, I am, you know, without it feeling, because I think The Apprentice has been quite terrible in our culture and kind yeah. of yeah. seeing egos fly and, and the, all of those things. But I think that there's nothing bad uh, in a situation where you're paired with, with somebody saying, look, I'm not going to be that great with, in terms of this and this, or this will have difficulties. But FYI, straight out of the bat, I can do this, this and this really well. Because half the time they, they just go, great, we'll leave you to it, you know? And then you just get on with it and then you 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 say if there's any challenges you have when they, they come up. So true. Rather than just saying when you approach these people, when you're in these situations, hi, I'm a liability, here are my problems spinning it the other way and saying, hi, here are my attributes and here are some of the challenges I occasionally haven't come up with. Love that. That's really nice. I know we're supposed to be sort of coming to the end, but I actually have one question that you mentioned about how you receive support in your third year at uni. And one thing I really struggled with was when I did receive support or I went off and, you know, did a one-to-one, had a one-to-one session with someone to help me on an essay the kind of commentary from peers yes, around just kind of this loose language that I got quite bruised about. So what So what were the things that they would say? You know, like, it's sort of like, oh, if I had 50% extra time, I'd do so oh, much better on my, yes, you know, yes, that sort of thing. Yes. Did you have to combat any of that? Was there any of that? And if there was any advice to anyone in uni going through the same experience? I mean, I'm sorry to, to, to hear that you had that. I completely sympathise. I think they used to be kind of off-the-cuff comments. I was lucky that one of my close friends was also dyslexic and she was also able to be my first line of defence whenever there was anything such as that. I found that also when I had exams and that, it was actually putting the pressure off in a weird way because I had to turn up early, but also I left late. 
So all of that chat of like, what did you put down for question three? You <laughs> never had to experience it. And it was such a blessing yeah, in that sense. But there's, there's always going to be this assumption of, oh, you're just having it easier. Oh, they're just letting you have a pass on this. And it's like trying to not really get down to their level, I think, is, is sort of the great thing. Or emphasizing without guess, seeming like it gets to you, like, you know, FYI this is why I'm doing it. It's not yeah. just because I fancy having an extra time in the example. It's because it takes longer for me to express myself or I need to have somebody who checks how I do things to make sure that it's exactly what you and I want, you know? Totally. I think, I think that's the, I think it's just, it's just being open, but also not having to explain yourself. I think the issue is that sometimes mm. if you're, you know, if, if you're known to be a, um, uh, if you're known openly to have dyslexia, are people asking for questions and, and I'd happily would talk to them, particularly if they're going through something about it. But also at the same time, if you're talking about it all the time, it can get quite, yeah. quite knackering. So you have to find that line to be like, actually, I've said all I need to say. And that's, that's it. You know, it's about, it's about making yourself knackered about <laughs> these sort of things, isn't it? It's, it's about drawing a line and being like, right, I've done explaining myself, really. What advice? would your younger self give to you now? What, so what, my, what I would say to my younger self? Mm-mm. No, what that younger self would say to me? What advice? Um, oh, that's, that's interesting. If I'm taking myself back to when I was 20, so 12 years ago, I think my younger self would be, try not to let it get to you, I think. Because I think when you're told about your dyslexia, when you're informed about it, I think you can go into a spiral um, because it's it's quite, you know, it's a big term. It's a big, it's a big change or it's a big announcement. And I think it's like nothing's changed. All you're being told is what you've already had. So, you know, embrace that. Try not to let the the assumptions that other people have about it become too much of a burden or, or affect your confidence that much. And just sort of keep keep the faith. You don't because I have a general thing. I've always had a general thing with anxiety, generally. And then it's that idea that, you know, why get anxious? Because you don't know what's going to happen anyway. Nobody does. <laughs> so it's like yeah. so try to stay a bit grounded. Although like the younger self me would be probably like, go out to the bar and meet more boys <laughs> why are you in the library like go where, out where are you off to today uh, I'm going to the pub to see a mate I purely, mean, purely, yeah. purely 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 saying that for the record I think the younger self is still alive in there still giving you the pointers he's still thinking why has he not got a boyfriend it's probably the, it's probably the number one thing he's thinking so thank you so much for being with us today Scott it's been lovely chatting to you Thanks for joining us on this episode of Move Beyond Words podcast. For more information about this episode, please check out the links in the show notes or visit our website at movebeyondwords.co.uk. This podcast was produced by the Move Beyond Words team, Elizabeth Arifium, myself, Charlotte Edmonds and Chris Bristow. It was recorded in Serendipity Studios London with graphic design by Alex Colhan and sound design and music by Chris Bristow and Tom Parker. 